This is episode number 253 with Dr. Thomas Fernie. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Just a quick little reminder that if you want to listen to my episodes one day earlier than they are released anywhere else, you have to download the app Himalaya and follow my show. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. So make sure you check it out today. Dr. Thomas Verney is a psychiatrist, author, and academic. He has taught at many major universities in America. His second book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, has become an international bestseller, published in 27 countries, and has changed the pregnancy and childbirth experience for millions of mothers and fathers around the world. He founded the Pre- and Perinatal Psychology Association of North America, and served as its president for eight years. He launched the Journal of Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. He wrote a weekly column, Lifelines, in the Toronto Star, and wrote short stories and poems about fathers and grandfathers titled Gifts of Our Fathers. He is also a published poet. He's collaborated on creating love chords, a compilation of classic music for pregnancy. His latest co-authored book, Reparenting, Nurturing Your Child from Conception, explores the implications of recent discoveries in the brain sciences and prenatal psychology for early human development, personality, and parenting. In addition to seven books, he is the author or co-author of 46 scientific papers and articles. His work has established him as one of the world's leading authorities on the effect of the prenatal and early postnatal environment on personality development. He has lectured and given workshops on prenatal and perinatal psychology and Mothering Magazine in recognition of his contribution to the field of parenting and child rearing named him one of their living treasures. That's a pretty impressive resume, I reckon. And in today's episode, we chat about his story and how he got to where he is today. The incredible story of life in the womb. This was amazing. You guys are going to love this. Why everything a mother eats, drinks, inhales, experiences, thinks, feels, and worries about can have an effect on her unborn child. This blew my mind. The biggest issues for pregnant women, and they're not what you think. The most effective ways to de-stress and why it's so incredibly important. The top things you must do while pregnant that make significant differences to your baby's development. Why you don't want to wear multitasking as a badge of honor. Does scrolling Instagram and multitasking have an effect on your child's mental and emotional development? This is so important. 
how his work has impacted his own parenting and how he shows up as a grandparent, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 253. And before we dive into this epic conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it's a five-star review titled Life Changing by Abby McCrickard. And she says, the people being interviewed on Melissa's show have so much knowledge as well as Melissa herself. This show has literally helped change my life and whole outlook. I love waking up excited for what the world has to bring me every day. Thanks to Melissa and her guests. Thank you so much, Abby, for that beautiful review. I'm so grateful and I'm so glad that you wake up excited for life. That is the best. So thank you so much for that beautiful review. I'm so grateful and honored. And don't forget that if you want to be the review of the week for next week, all you have to do is head on over to iTunes and leave me that five-star review right now. I would be so grateful and you could be the review of the week for next week. And it just means that we can get even more epic people on the show, which is awesome. So without further ado, let's bring on the epic Dr. Thomas Verney. Thomas, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? What I had for breakfast this morning was green tea. And uh, and then I had some fresh fruit with yogurt and and some uh, muesli on top. Wow. Sounds delicious. Thank you. Now, you have created so much in your lifetime. You are prolific. So can you take us back and tell us your story and how you got into this work and how you got to where you are today? How did this all unfold for you? Well, if if I should be true to my writings, I should really start with my mother's pregnancy, shouldn't I? In which case, it would probably take us more than an hour. So I think that we have to jump forward a little bit. Yes. Well, when I was very young, when I was actually 14 years old, I read Freud's interpretation of dreams. And it really just sort of resonated with me. I just just really loved that. And so I decided then and there to become a psychiatrist. Then I studied medicine at the University of Toronto, which is a very good school. But this was in the 1950s, I'm afraid. And many of our teachers were, many of our professors, medical doctors, had a really slanted view, a really dark view of psychiatry. And... um, the general impression from the few lectures that we did have on psychiatry, plus more of what people said sort of between lectures, I got the idea that, you know, the only thing that psychiatrists do is they see rich ladies who are complaining about their poodles. Well, that did not sound like a very attractive prospect for me, right? 
And so then and there, I decided that I would go into obstetrics. And I went into obstetrics, and um, I delivered, oh, I think about 26 or 28 children. But it was a horrible, horrible experience. I worked in a Catholic hospital that had a very large Italian population in Toronto. And the doctors would yell at the women, you know, push, push, push. The way the women, the pregnant women were treated was just awful to me. It seemed very inhumane. And uh, also the whole birthing process was incredibly bloody and unattractive. And so then I thought, well, this was in my, my, my last year, just before, like we had six years of study, and this was in my fifth year. And during the summer, I decided that I would go to work in a large psychiatric hospital in the United States. And I went, and they had very, very few doctors. It was a population of about 5,000 patients. Like this was before we had tranquilizers and antidepressants. And essentially, most of the people were just being warehoused. So they asked me, where would you like to work? And I said that I would like to work in the emergency department where new patients were brought in. And so that's where I started working. And I knew very, very little psychiatry. But from my readings of Freud, I knew that you're supposed to talk about dreams. So I started to talk to my patients about their dreams. And I started to see their mothers and fathers and wives and husbands. And very quickly, the word spread that there was actually a doctor here who talked to patients because none of the other doctors talked to their patients. They would spend about 10 minutes with them, prescribe them some medications, and left the rest up to the nurses and the orderlies. So within about a week, I had this long lineup of patients in front of my little office wanting to talk to me. And my patients started to do better. They did better than any of the other doctor's patients. And, you know, they were discharged from the hospital within a couple of weeks. And when I saw this, I could see that psychiatry really was much more than just serving rich ladies with their poodles. And so I decided to go into psychiatry. But I did have this obstetrical background, you see. And so when I started working in my office as a psychiatrist after I finished all my studies and got my degrees, once in a while, you know, once in a while I would ask people about their early years. And I became quite interested in the fact that some of them seemed to remember some very, very early experiences. So for example, one of the first things that happened to me was that a young man, in the midst of discussing his dream, suddenly started crying like a little baby. And I did not interfere with him. I let him do that. After about 10 minutes, he came out of it, so to speak. 
I asked him what happened. He said, well, just a few minutes ago, I, I, I was a little baby, and I was in a uh, baby bed. What's the word? It's not coming to me right now. The cot? Yeah. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. There's a better word. But anyway, in a, in a little baby bed. And then he said, being a somewhat skeptical young lawyer, you know, there's something wrong with this picture because the he says, well, I, I, I just saw myself in a blue cot. And actually, I have seen pictures of myself as a baby, and they were always they they were always taken in a white cot. So there's something wrong here. So I said, "Well, why don't you go home? His mother was still alive, and talk to her about it, and come back next week and tell me." So he came back next week, and he said, "Well, this is absolutely amazing. My mother says that." When I was born, they did not have enough money to buy me one of these cots. And so for the first few months of my life, I spent them in a blue cot, which was a borrowed cot. And only then my parents brought, bought me a new one, which was white, and that's where all the pictures were taken. So I thought to myself, well, how is this possible? I mean, this kid, <laughs> this, this person remembers the color of his cot, nobody ever told him this. Where did, he, where did he get it? But, you know, I was very well educated. I, uh, I went to Harvard University. I went to the University of Toronto. And I was always taught that babies before the age of two, children before the age of two, can't remember anything. So I, I really didn't give it a second thought. But then gradually, more and more experiences of this nature happen. I will just tell you one more. Is that okay? Oh, please. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So what happened was that I had, I had a good friend who by this time knew that I was interested in really very early childhoods. And she said she was listening to the radio. And Boris brought who at that time, and still actually is, a very famous Canadian conductor, was being interviewed, like you and I are doing it right now. And towards the end of the interview, the interviewer asked him, tell me, Boris, how did your, how did your musical career start? You know, what, what started you? And he said, well, I think it started in the womb. Well, everybody, of course, you know, stopped and everybody was kind of excited and, and surprised. And so the interviewer and whoever else was there asked him, well, tell me more about that. And he said, well, when I first started practicing conducting, sometimes before I even turned the page, I knew, I knew what the notes of the violin were. And I didn't know I didn't know that with other instruments, but with the violin, very often I had somehow this feeling without ever having studied the score that I I I knew it. Somehow it was familiar. So he said, Well, then I went home and spoke to my mother, who is a violinist. And I told her which pieces seemed so strangely familiar. 
And she said, those were the pieces I practiced while I was pregnant with you. Wow. So, you know, exactly. You know, so I thought, well, hmm, this is interesting. And so, you know, I started collecting, you know, every two or three months, I heard another story like this. And so I started thinking, you know, I started reading books on pregnancy and psychology and all that, and none of them had any descriptions like that. Like, it just wasn't there. So then I heard that there was a large conference in Rome in 1969, I think, 69 or 68, on psychosomatic obstetrics and gynecology. And I knew by that time that, you know, people who give lectures are better treated than just, you know, the rest of the audience. So I thought, well, why not try and present a paper? And so I wrote this paper, which was called The Psychic Life of the Unborn Child. And lo and behold, totally to my surprise, because like I was totally unknown and, you know, just a psychiatrist in Canada, the paper was accepted. Not only was it accepted, but it was put on the morning of the, of the absolute best lectures that, that were being given at that time in Rome. There was something like 700 people from all over the world there. And so I was given 30 minutes, and I put in like the two stories that I've just told you about and any kind of biological supports that I could muster at that time that would support the idea that actually children before the age of two could actually remember things. And so I presented this paper to the full assembly there, about 700 people. And it was like electricity running through the audience. Like I could feel it on stage that everybody was really, really excited. Like they just loved it. They either loved it or hated it, but there was a lot of feeling. There was a lot of feeling in the air. So when I saw that, I said, well, at five o'clock today, if anybody wants to continue talking about this, come to my room. And I gave them my room number. Well, at five o'clock, there were lots and lots of people. And have you ever heard of Ronnie Lang, the psychiatrist? No. Oh, no. Well, he was a very well known at that time in the 60s and 50s. He was a Scottish psychiatrist. Ronnie Lang has written many, many books fabulous guy, many other leading psychiatrists, midwives, all kinds of very, very important people. Well, they all came to my room. And so (laughs) I got to know them and I connected with them. And so then when I came back to Toronto, I started writing the book, which which I called The Psychic Life of the Unborn Child, but Simon & Schuster didn't like that title because it sounded like, you know, psychics extra kind of extrasensory perception, you know, that kind of stuff. So they called it the secret life of the unborn child. And because I had personal knowledge of so many of the leading lights, I was able to write them letters, get ideas from them that I was able to put into the book. And then everything kind of came together. And then when when I went to New York, 
with my manuscript, there were 12 publishers who were interested in, in, in publishing it. It, it. it was amazing. It was like totally, totally amazing. And then Simon & Schuster published it. And then I went around, around the world uh, publicizing it. And at the moment, it's uh, translated into 27 languages. And wow. yeah, really. And I mean, I had no idea when I was right. I mean, if I would have sold 5,000 copies, I would have been extremely happy. I did not expect it to, you know, be such a success. And so then a year after I published The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, then I, I started the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health, which is still a going concern in, uh, in, in the United States and Canada. Mm, absolutely. Thank you for sharing, and hopefully you can share a few more of those incredible stories that you've heard along your journey. But so you believe that life doesn't begin when we are burst into the world, that it is already happening in the womb. From conception on. From, from conception, conception on. Yes. Yes. So one of the things that I have heard you talk about is mm -hmm. that Anything that the mother eats, drinks, yes. inhales, yes. she experiences the stress that she's exposed to, the feelings that she has, the thoughts yes. that she thinks yes. can affect the unborn child. So can you talk to that? Because I, I know a lot of people, when they fall pregnant, they might, you know, look after their diet. So they might, you know, start eating organic food, but they're not you know, they don't take into consideration the stress that they're exposed to or, say, for example, the products that they're using. And you believe that it's anything that they eat, drink, inhale, experience, the stress, the feelings, the thoughts, the emotions, everything. So can you talk to that for us? Sure. The diet is the least of our problems. That, that's easy. The difficult part is, is trying to control your emotions. There are hundreds, hundreds of papers now that have been written about the effect of stress on uh, the unborn child. Stress produces adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisone. All of these stress hormones have a very toxic effect on the brain. What we have to remember is that during the early stages of pregnancy, 250,000 250,000 neurons are produced every minute of intrauterine life. Now, that's, that's, it's, it's such a large number that it's hard to you know, get, your, get your head around it. But because so many are being produced and because they are so immature, they're also very vulnerable. And what research has shown is that if there is an increase in the brain of cortisone, if there's an increase in toxic products such as nicotine or any of the other sort of recreational drugs, they first interfere with the wiring of the brain. Every neuron is genetically programmed to go to a certain place in the brain. It's hard to believe this, but it's true. And so when there is too much cortisone, when there is too much nicotine and all the other things that people 
inhale and imbibe, those substances will interfere with the journey of the neuron, which starts in the midline and moves towards the periphery of the brain, which is why it's called the cortex. So cortical neurons are the neurons that we do all our thinking with. So if there is a high ratio of these cortisone and other stress hormones, then let's say a neuron that's supposed to go from place A to place B doesn't actually reach point B in the brain. It might go to C or D or E or F, doesn't matter. But it will not go to where it's supposed to go. It will be short of that. It will not journey all the way. If there is a lot of cortisone, if, for example, there is chronic stress, chronic low-level stress, let's say in a 16-year-old girl who has become pregnant, doesn't even know who the father of the child is, is perhaps smoking, is perhaps drinking, doesn't know what she will do with the child. When there is this kind of chronic stress, actually thousands and thousands of neurons will actually be destroyed. So when this child is born, his or her nervous system is not going to be normal. From the very beginning, okay, his computer is not functioning properly. The, no, no matter what you put into it, okay, the hard wiring is dysfunctional. And that's what people need to understand, that that poor child already is handicapped from the word go. So stress, anxiety, depression, they all work pretty well the same way. There, there are minor differences, but it's all the same. It's too much cortisone, too much stress hormone, then there are other hormones involved also. There's an increase in vasopressin, which is sort of kind of an anger hormone. There's a decrease in oxytocin, which is the love hormone. So all kinds of things happen to the brain and to your immune system, which are detrimental to the health of that child. Mm, wow. So even if this mother is you know, eating all organic and drinking clean filtered water but is, and but it's stressed. But it's stressed, it's it's, it's not going not, to be no. supportive. Exactly. Okay. So say someone is pregnant right now yes. or they want to get pregnant yes. and they realize that they have stress in their system or that they're easily stressed. What can we do? Like what are some of the things that you recommend for people who are either pregnant right now, who are dealing with stress, or who want to get pregnant, and they know that stress is an issue for them right now. So how can they, what can we do? Okay, let's differentiate between people who are already pregnant and those who want to be pregnant. Because for the people who want to be pregnant, I have sort of different advice than from the people who are already pregnant. So for the people who are already pregnant, do everything you can to decrease your stress level, which means that, for example, if you are in a very stressful job, you know, perhaps you can ask to be put into a less stressful job with the same company because you're pregnant. People will understand that. If you are in a relationship which is stressful, 
try to resolve that, either get out of it or try to make it better. Try to find at least half an hour, preferably an hour in a day where you can meditate. Try to find time to go for walks. All the research shows that nature is very, very good for your nerves. Lots of research has been done comparing, for example, people living in large cities with people living in in smaller places where they are exposed to trees and flowers and grass. Huge difference. So being in nature as much as possible, meditating in any which way that you can, doing yoga, listening to classical music if possible. If you don't like classical music, listen to good music. Just don't listen to hard rock, okay? Don't listen to music that is angry, that is loud. Try to think of your child, okay? Try to find out what that child looks like when he or she is six months old or seven months old or eight months old, and then try to communicate with that child. And this doesn't have to be very complicated. I met a journalist a couple of uh, couple of months ago, and she told me that when she was pregnant with her first child, her husband was studying medicine, and he was never home. Four years later, she was pregnant again, but this time her husband had graduated, was home, and every night she said to me, he would talk to the baby. I said, well, what did he say? She said, well, he just said, he, t- he talked about the weather and what we had for dinner and that he was really for looking forward to, by that time we knew it was a son, he was really looking forward to seeing his son. When this lady gave birth, the husband was allowed to approach her after she had given birth to, to their baby son. And as he came close, he sort of held up his hand and he said, hi, Junior. And this lady says to me, my son just kind of turned his head and looked at my husband and gave him this big smile of recognition. Like there was no doubt. There was no doubt that this child recognized the father, his voice. And What is even more interesting is that now a few years later, she says, my husband's relationship to my second child is so much better than to my first child. And she believes Mm -hmm. that that is due to prenatal communication and prenatal bonding. I think it's very important to think of your child, to speak to your child, whether you believe that he or she can understand is really not important. Just talk to the child. And also be, tu- be tuned in to the child. Another story. A woman, when she was pregnant, went to a racing track where cars were racing. And she was standing very close to a corner. So every time the racing cars came by, they would, you know, put on the brakes and make this terrible sound. And her baby started kicking her like crazy. And that baby kicked her so hard that he actually broke one her, her lowest rib, she told me. So she 
if she had listened to this broadcast, perhaps, she would have known not to stay at that racing car spot because the baby was protesting, but she was not giving that baby enough sense. She was not ascribing him the mental faculty to actually be protesting against the sound that he was being exposed to. So being in touch with your unborn child is also very, very important. You can also play with your unborn child when he or she is awake. It's very important to let them sleep. But when they are awake and they are moving, what women have told me that they have done is that they would push in with, let's say, one or two fingers on one side of the abdomen. Then they would push in on the other side. And within a very short time, the baby picked up the game and he or she started pushing against her fingers Mm -hmm. from inside. And that, they tell me, was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. You're really making contact with your unborn child before you ever see him. So those are the things that I would say to women and, 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 and men who are pregnant. But I would say, in addition to all this, to women who are thinking of becoming pregnant, to really, really talk to your partner about the child that you're about to create. So often, not everyone in, in the pair, not every, every person in the couple really wants to be pregnant. Sometimes women want to be more pregnant than their husbands. And that does not bode well for the child. If the child is born and has problems sleeping or has problems with diarrhea or, you know, food intake, etc., the husband can very easily say, well, you wanted this, I didn't, so you look after him. That's not what you want, right? So I think it's really, really important for the two of them to see eye to eye, for both of them to agree that this would be a good time to have a baby. And of course, all babies should be wanted babies. Like, you know, no baby should be born unwanted or, you know, at the wrong time or, oh my God, I already have 10 children. I mean, we can think of all kinds of reasons why people would not want to have a child. So it's very important that both of them desire to have this child and both of them are prepared, you know, for some of the stresses that come with having a child. Yeah. Is there anything else we can do to prepare ourselves before we get pregnant in relation to the stress reduction? Because I feel like, you know, I've had so many experts on my show and one of the biggest things that comes up time and time again is this stress. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else that we can do to prepare ourselves to really limit our exposure to stress? Well, you can think of all the things that are stressing you out, you know, write them down on a page in, in a notebook or something. And then see what you can do about each one of them. You know, I I think the first step would be to recognize what stresses you. And I think that's very important. And again, this is something that you could discuss with your partner. What is it, you know, because sometimes your partners know more about your stresses than you do. So, you know, discovering, first of all, what are the stress, stress factors in your life and then see 
which of those you could ameliorate, modify, or even, you know, do away with, omit totally, cut out. I think that would be helpful. Like I said, you know, preparing some good music to listen to, getting signed up for some yoga lessons. There are yoga lessons for pregnant women pretty well everywhere. I'm sure there are in Australia. And, you know, just preparing yourself. I mean, so many people think only of what they will do with the baby after it is born instead of thinking about the first nine months. Mm. You yeah, know, which is so important. Yes, and you exactly. talk about we you talk about how much we underestimate the mental and emotional development yes. of the unborn child. Yes. It's so important. Those those nine months yes. is when everything is forming. They are building their brain. They yes. are forming. It is so important. Every system, you know, the, the immune system, you know, yes. very, very importantly is developed or undeveloped as a result of stress in a woman's life. And uh, like you said, everything really, yes. I, I know a few women that mm-hmm. have almost pedal to the metal, flogged it in those nine months. And they're like, and then once it's born, then I'll relax. Yes, then exactly, I'll rest. Exactly. And, and they go, go, go. They're like, I've got to, I've got to write this book and I've got to do this and I've got to travel all around the world doing speaking gigs and yes. I've got to do this and I've got to renovate the house. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know so many women who have just gone for it in those nine months. And then, then they're like, okay, well, as soon as the baby's here, then I'll relax. But what you're saying is don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. And and one more thing in terms of the women that you just mentioned, you know, these are usually very, very competent women, and they are very proud of the fact that they can multitask. And so once the baby is born, and let's say that they are breastfeeding the baby or bottle feeding, doesn't matter, but they are very proud of the fact that they can be on the telephone while they are bottle feeding and cooking perhaps at the same time in the kitchen and bottle feeding the baby. This is not how you should feed the baby. This is very, very destructive. When you hold the baby to your breast or when you are bottle feeding the baby, it should be just you and the baby. And you are looking into the eyes of the baby and the baby is looking back at you and you have this incredible contact with the baby. And that's how the baby develops emotionally and intellectually best. You know, mm-hmm. it's very, very important to totally focus your attention, the mother's attention on the baby for those few minutes. This is not the time to multitask. Mm, that is such a beautiful reminder. And I think w- a lot of women do wear multitasking as mm-hmm. a badge of honor. Exactly. But when we when we multitask, we're doing two or three things half-heartedly instead of just doing one thing to 100%. And usually if you do two or three things half-heartedly, you then are creating more work for yourself because you then have to go back and redo something because you haven't done it properly or maybe you've made a mistake or, or something like that. Absolutely. So, you know, I used to wear multitasking like mm-hmm. a badge of honor. And now, now I'm like, I just want to do whatever's in front of me, and I want to do it to the best of my ability. And whether that's for some women, it's breastfeeding or it's working on a project, just do that one thing and do it really well. But I wanted to ask your opinion on the breastfeeding thing. Yes. 
Because, you know, for when my mother had me and my siblings, she would just breastfeed. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, we are so addicted to our smartphones that a lot of women are breastfeeding whilst they're scrolling Instagram or on social media. So what effect is that having on the child's emotional and mental development? Well, you see, the problem is that the women that you talk about don't realize that that child is really a small, excuse me, a small person. So imagine, you know, holding, let's say, a 12-year-old child in your arms. I mean, would you, would you feed that child and speak on the telephone at the same time? Probably not, right? But because it's a baby, you can do it. Just like, you know, there are certain things that you perhaps would expose animals to that you wouldn't expose people to. So part of the problem is this lack of understanding of the mental and emotional development of these very young children, that the mothers don't recognize that there's a really a little person there with a working brain and that they're taking in the fact that they are not being given full attention. And not being given full attention, well, it can create all kinds of feelings and thoughts. You know, they may be very immature thoughts, but they are the beginnings of feelings of inferiority. I'm not important is the message that that child is getting when the mother is multitasking. I'm not important. And that, that, that is being conveyed to that child in, in a hundred different ways. The mother, let's say, talking on the telephone to somebody else or having her eyes on something else. All those things tell the baby that he or she is not the most important thing to the mother at that moment. And that's that's what is very, very troublesome. How do we deal with that? Say we have children that are with us 24-7, so they're with us all day and Mm -hmm. all night. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we, I mean, can we give them our full attention all day and no, night or no. or how do we work how do we move through this because i know there's some women who maybe have two or three kids sure. that are at home with them yeah. all day so mm-hmm. how do we move through that well okay it's very very important to explain things to children because again if you explain they will understand on some level they will understand when i go let's say to a shopping mall i observe mothers with small children some of them will just yell at them. Don't do that. Stop that. Come here. Go there. What's wrong with you? And then others will speak nicely. No, Johnny, you can't do that. No, 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 no. That that hurts, mommy. You can't do that. There's a huge difference in what happens to those children. I mean, research has been done on how parents talk to their children. And parents who sort of command them and you know, carry a big stick, they forget about the carrot. And really, you get much further with explaining to children why they should or shouldn't do something rather than yelling at them. So coming back to your question, it's very important to explain to a child that you have other things to do, okay? Mommy now has to go and prepare dinner for the family. So I want you to sit here and uh, play with your crayons or whatever, right? And if the child starts crying, well, you just go back and you say the same thing again. You have to be patient. 
And if you're not a patient person, don't have three children. <laughs> yes, and I've I've observed this in some of my friends. You know, they will mm-hmm. say, you know, mummy's going to talk to Melissa. Mummy's going to yes. talk to her good friend yes. Melissa yes. now. Yes. And, you know, because mummy loves Melissa yes. and she's a very good friend to her yes. and, and yes. mummy would love to talk yes. to Melissa now. And would it be okay, you know, you mm-hmm. do this or you go play with yes. Johnny or whatever. So, yeah, and I have a 13-year-old stepson and mm-hmm. my husband very much did this from day one. He spoke to Leo yes. very crystal clearly. He would explain to him, mm-hmm. well, this is what we're doing and yes. this is why we're yes, doing it. Yes. He, he never kind of spoke to him, like he never dumbed it down. Yes. He didn't like baby good, talk good, to him. Good. And I and I picked up on that at a very you know, from when I first got with my husband. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important. And I look at the emotional intelligence of our 13 yes. year old, yes. and he is he is, you know, so emotionally intelligent mm-hmm. and so emotionally developed. You know, lots of people say to us, you know, how old is Leo? Like he's very, mm-hmm. he's not like, he's not like other 13 year olds. Right, right. So yeah, I just think that's so important that we explain to yes. them what we're doing so that they understand, even though, you know, we might, some people might think, oh, they won't understand, but mm-hmm. they do, they do understand. Mm-hmm. How did your husband how did he acquire that kind of an attitude? For him, he said it was very intuitive. Mm-hmm. So he remembers when Leo was, you know, sitting in those little chairs on the kitchen bench mm-hmm. and he would be talking to Leo. This was probably when he, he couldn't even talk. And he would just be explaining to Leo what he was doing and talking to him, you know, not like, cuckoo kaka, you know, like he'd be like, Leo, I'm making pizza now and this is how you make pizza. So you grab the dough. And he just said it was very intuitive for Mm. him. Well, you are very lucky. You're very lucky (laughs) to have a husband like that. You know, most people are not like that, unfortunately. So yeah, you're lucky. Well, he's he's a very conscious being and he's, yeah, I feel very grateful. But another thing that I absolutely love when I was doing some research on yes. you, I love the idea that you said whilst women are pregnant, they should wear a T-shirt that yes. says baby under construction. Yes, yes, yes. Now, now firstly, I totally agree. And and secondly, I want to know, have you made these shirts No, yet? I have not. I have not. I should. I should. I'm just not an entrepreneur. You know, I'm I'm good at ideas, but I'm not so good at getting them into 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 life somehow yeah well well yesterday i was chatting to my yes. husband as we went for a walk about this interview i was telling him yes. who i'm interviewing yes. and and about your work and yes. i told him that you said you know we should have these shirts yes. that says baby under construction and he was like that's a brilliant idea okay he's like that is, he's like someone needs to do that it's yes. a brilliant idea and i was like yeah it well. is you know because the, there is like what you are doing. You are building a baby. You yes. are creating a baby. Yes. It is so important, mm-hmm. and the women need to remember that. Yes. Well, you yes. can you can go ahead and you can <laughs> you can put on it Thomas R. Bernie, MD, and just just make a business out of it. Well, my husband is a serial entrepreneur, so oh. I wouldn't. You know, he he may do it. He may do it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So, Thomas, I'd love to hear now, let's pretend that you have a magic wand 
and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides your books, let's pre- <laughs> let's pretend they're already in there because they absolutely should be. But what is one other book that's not yours? Like one other book that you think should be in the school curriculum? Hmm. I think what I would put is the facts of life. The Facts of Life by R.D. Lang. Lang is spelled L-A-I-N-G, Lang. Mm, Okay, that sounds awesome. Yeah, the subtitle is An Essay in Feelings, Facts, and Fantasy. Oh, wow, that sounds awesome. And we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, have a look at it. It's really quite amazing. I'm just opening it up. There's just so much good, good stuff in it. The life of the individual repeats the life of the species. So in the womb, the embryo passes through the image states of tens of thousands of antecedent years of its development. In this state, it is not unreasonable to suppose that the developing fetus may be at best somewhat subject to the images of the mother who may be trying desperately to get rid of it, etc. So I guess that's a kind of uh, perhaps he's dealing there with a child whose mother is trying to abort him, which of Mm. course is a whole other subject. But that's an amazing book. Have a look at it. It's probably out of print, but see if you can find one. Yes. And do you have children? Yes, I do. How many children? I I have two children from my first marriage and then two children from second marriage. So we have four children. And we have nine grandchildren. Oh, wow. Yes. And how has all of this work affected the way that you parent? Well, I think that I think that a lot of this work really happened after my children were born, unfortunately. In fact, I remember with my second child, I wanted to be present at the birth and my then wife objected to that and didn't want me to be present. I mean, this was, you know, in the 1960s and women were not as comfortable about childbirth as they are today, but it has affected the way I treat my grandchildren. <laughs> so they have, mm. they have benefited from it more than my own children. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I'd love to hear about some of the daily things that you do to stay you know, centered within yourself? Like, do you have a little morning routine? Do you have a meditation practice? How do you, you know, set yourself up for a successful day? I attend yoga classes three times a week and I go for a one mile walk every day if I can. And I play a lot of chess. I love chess. I play tournament chess. I'm a good chess player. I write poetry and uh, love to eat out once in a while with my wife. I do some psychotherapy with some patients. I'm not working full-time. I'm working part-time. Those are all activities that I really, really enjoy. I am consultant to the Stratford Shakespearean Festival. So when anytime one of their actors or directors or anybody else on the staff has some psychiatric problems I'm called upon. And I love the theater, and I go as often as I can 
So those are the things that, that I that I do. Mm, sounds beautiful. Thank you. Now I have three little rapid fire questions for okay. you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Mm, there's so many things that you can do for your health, mm. but I eat slowly. Mm, yes, such a good one. Eat Something slowly. I am always reminding myself right. of. Like don't, don't rush and eat, you know, with, with one finger into something else, you know. Like, again, it's the multitasking thing, you know. When you eat, eat slowly, focus on what you are doing, and enjoy it. Yes, and don't absolutely. drink And don't drink bad wine. Life is too short for bad wine. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the next one is, what's one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. So you're not just talking money, are you? No, you can you can say what you believe for more money, but any sort of abundance, abundance of well, love, of, yeah. of relationships, of health, everything. Well, I don't know. I, I personally always think of people that I know who need support in one way or another, and I try to give that support, whether it is emotional or financial, or, you know, so sometimes I come across something on the internet, and so th that may be important to one of my friends, and so I will shoot over that information to my friend. That's how I support my friends. Mm, that's beautiful. And what's one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Admit that you are wrong when you are wrong. Mm, that's a good one. So many people never, ever admit that they have made a mistake, that they have misspoken, that they are wrong. I mean, just look at Trump, for example. Never admits that he's wrong. So people like that are impossible to live with. The more you can say, yeah, I'm sorry, you know, that was a mistake or I didn't mean to shout at you or anything like that, the better your relationships are going to be. Mm, I think that's really important with kids as well as admitting to your kids. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Because I think our children think that we are superhuman. Exactly. I know I I know I did for mm -hmm. so long. It wasn't until I became a stepmom where I mm -hmm. realized that my parents had mm -hmm. feelings and weren't superheroes. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, admitting and saying, you know, I stuffed up there mm -hmm. or, you know, I didn't handle that the way that yes. I yes. truly wanted to is such a big thing. And it makes it connects us on a deeper level. Yes, absolutely. It's so important. Yeah. This has been so incredible, Thomas. I'm so grateful. Before I ask you our last question, is there anything else that you want to share or any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? No, I, I think that your questions were very good. I think I pretty well told you everything that I know. <laughs> I, I'm working on a new book now. And when that comes out, perhaps I can get in touch with you and we can talk about that. Because that's yes. about that's about cellular intelligence. Oh, sounds amazing. Yeah. Yes, yes. I think it's going to be quite the book. So perhaps next year. Yes, I would love that. Okay. I just wanted to thank you so much, not only for your time today and for sharing all of your knowledge and your wisdom, but for all the work that you do, all the books, 
all the papers, everything that you've done, you've created, and for sharing this knowledge with the world and helping so many people. It's just incredible. And I'm so grateful. And you are serving so many people. And I'm a big believer in service. So I want to know how I personally and the listeners can serve you today. What can we do to serve you? Well, just just be good to your unborn children. That's That will be enough. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank I you. am so grateful. Thank you. Great interview. Really enjoyed it. And I will be in touch with you next year. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you, Melissa. Bye-bye. Wasn't that an awesome episode? I got so much out of it, so many awesome reminders. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading them every single week. And for everything that Thomas and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 253. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of, I know about 150, that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. This information is life changing. It's so important, especially if you are pregnant or you're thinking about having children. And if even that's years away, it's still so important that you get this information now. So you can take a screenshot, you can share this on your social media, you can email it to your friends, you can text it to them. Just do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy. Healthy is liberating and wealthy isn't a dirty word.